Hello and welcome to the HE Live podcast. I'm your host, Polly Martin, Senior Reporter for Hydrogen Economist. For this episode, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Sunita Satyapal, Director of the US Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technologies Office. So, Sunita, to start with, could you explain how hydrogen has come to be a part of the federal clean energy agenda? Yes, and thank you, first of all, for the invitation and organizing these important podcasts. And hydrogen is actually one part of a very comprehensive portfolio within the federal government and the U.S. Department of Energy. And it actually started back in the 1970s when DOE was formed. And at that time, our focus was on energy security, reducing dependence on foreign oil. There were high gasoline prices. And it all started with a group of researchers, managers from governments, at a workshop at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And eventually that led to the DOE program and the billions that we have today. And we now, as you may know, President Biden has laid out the boldest climate agenda in our nation's history, one that will require really robust collaboration across the federal government, all the states and the private sector, and relies on the power of science, innovation, and getting to scale and deployments. And countries are recognizing that the need for the carbon-free molecule is not just energy security, but also the ability of hydrogen to decarbonize multiple sectors. And since that time, we actually have over 1,200 patents as a result of our funding, our office's funding, and about 30 commercial technologies and another 60 or 70 that we see could be commercial in the next several years. So again, it all started back in the 1970s when we saw the potential for hydrogen and fuel cell technologies. What is the current strategy when it comes to scaling up clean hydrogen? So we have, in fact, released the National Clean Hydrogen Strategy and the roadmap for public comment. Our Secretary of Energy released it, and it was required in the bipartisan infrastructure law. And it has three main components of that strategy. One is focus on the strategic high-impact uses of hydrogen, so especially those hard-to-decarbonize sectors. Lower the cost of hydrogen. That's where the hydrogen energy earth shot comes in. So in the U.S., we produce over 10 million metric tons of hydrogen per year, mostly from natural gas, about 10 percent of the global capacity. And because our, our natural gas prices are so low, the cost of hydrogen is only $1.50 or so. So our goal with the hydrogen shot is to get to $1 per kilogram in one decade, which is really required for competitive, especially domestic market. And then the third part of the strategy is regional networks and creating that demand growth and infrastructure. And the hydrogen hubs are a flagship program that's part of the strategy. So again, the strategy is really comprehensive and our goals based on market demand scenarios, so not just hydrogen supply projections, are 10 million metric tons of clean hydrogen by 2030 and 50 by 2050 and multiple you know, other components of the strategy, like workforce development, energy, environmental justice, and really get a, getting to scale. And I should also mention that DOE just released our, quote, commercial liftoff reports that help to identify the opportunities and the barriers to enable an economically competitive market penetration for various technologies, including hydrogen. So we have a really comprehensive strategy and also an action plan. So it's not a, a static document. So you mentioned the bipartisan infrastructure law. So could you tell me a little bit more about what the impact of this legislation and the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act 
will be on, I suppose, building up a domestic hydrogen value chain. Yes, and there's a lot of excitement. The bipartisan infrastructure law provides about $62 billion to the Department of Energy and $9.5 billion specifically for hydrogen. And it has you know, key sections of the statute, which include the hydrogen hubs. So it's $8 billion. There's $1.5 billion specifically for electrolyzers and manufacturing technology. So it really provides a tremendous boost. And I should mention that there are multiple offices across DOE. So we stood up an office of infrastructure, including clean energy demonstrations. And in addition, in my role as director for the hydrogen and fuel cell technologies office, I've also been the hydrogen program coordinator. So again, it's all hands on deck and the entire value chain from hydrogen production to end use. And then the Inflation Reduction Act has provided tax credits. And the one that's getting a lot of attention is the hydrogen production tax credit which is based on carbon intensity. So we're really staying away from the colors of hydrogen. And the IRA incentivizes clean hydrogen. And the cleanest possible getting is the highest tax credit, which is $3 a kilogram. So again, both of these pieces of legislation are providing a tremendous boost to help get hydrogen at scale you know, across the value chain from research to deployments. One of the things that's really interesting about the U.S. clean energy policy is this principle of a just energy transition. So could you tell me a little bit more about how this applies to the work that the Department of Energy is doing on hydrogen? Yes, thanks so much for asking that question, Polly. And it's such a critical part of everything we do. And I should mention that the Biden administration actually issued executive orders, equity and programming, which directs all agencies to increase their equity outcomes and government programs, and then also one on climate home and abroad, which contains the Justice 40 initiative that states that 40% of specific federal investments must benefit disadvantaged communities. And so all of our programs, we you know recognize that there are underlying structural inequalities and there have been development projects that can disproportionately and you know inequitably harm certain communities, especially low-income communities. And so there's a very strong focus on how do we ensure an equitable transition and address environmental justice concerns. And so we're looking at, in fact, we have a whole office of economic impact and diversity. That's the agency leader for DOE and multiple offices are working in collaboration to develop best practices, lessons learned. And we also require, for example, community benefits plans for both research and development projects all the way to deployment projects. And so we are asking applicants for DOE funding to consider how do their technologies impact labor groups, energy equity, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, And we also ask specifically for them to engage impacted communities and labor, look at the benefits and also the negative or potential negative impacts really with a critical eye and look at where 
can we take action to help mitigate those impacts? So there's a lot of effort in you know this whole aspect, and we have many examples as well that our office and other offices are looking at. In fact, just to give one specific example, our office has been funding a project which will demonstrate 15 trucks, so parcel delivery trucks using hydrogen and fuel cells in a disadvantaged community. This is in in California. And with our partners, there'll be UPS trucks, and they actually double the range compared to the typical battery version and offering fast fueling and concrete benefits. So it's also air quality improvements because there's zero emissions and reducing noise pollution compared to the diesel trucks and so forth. So that's just one example, and we have others as well, but it's a really critical part of our effort. So thanks for mentioning that question. It also kind of raises this idea of diversity and inclusion. Where would you say are some of the opportunities to improve diversity and inclusion as this sector grows from its current nascent state? Yeah, thanks also for that question. And they're also, in addition to the energy and environmental justice aspect, diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility are a huge priority as well within DOE and across the agencies and in our office. And I thought maybe I can highlight just a few specific examples since you asked. And one, for instance, is in the U.S., we have universities, for instance, that are called historically Black colleges and universities, HBCUs, or minority-serving institutions. And so, for example, we have issued funding opportunities specifically for HBCUs and MSIs, so they can work with you know, other projects that we fund. Again, as the main federal agency for energy, we provide funding to universities, industry, national labs. And then we've also had, for instance, at one of our national labs in Los Alamos, we have a program where we bring in minority students, so again, from HBCUs and provide training. We have had over 100 students that have gone through that training specifically in, in fuel cells and then help to match them with careers and in industry or labs after they graduate. And we have other examples, the so-called GEM Fellowship Program. And it's not just local or domestic. We even have global activities. So, for example, we launched the Early Career Network as part of IPHE, so which is the International Partnership for Hydrogen and Fuel Cells in the Economy. It was launched in 2003 and has over 20 countries, European Commission, and this early career network helps to advance hydrogen and fuel cells and foster collaboration networking and has that whole aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion. In fact, now it's and it's completely run by students, postdocs, early career professionals, and now has members from over 38 countries. And so that's just you know one example. And here also going back to the energy justice and diversity inclusion equity, we also launched as part of the clean energy ministerial, the H2 Twin Cities initiative. So this also is a global initiative to foster collaboration across continents among those that are at the forefront of hydrogen. We're also looking at mentors and mentee cities as a component of diversity, equity, inclusion, environmental justice. So again, there are many, many examples. I thought I'd just highlight a few. And because we have a lot of international initiatives 
We also are mapping out through what's called the Breakthrough Energy Agenda, all these different international collaborations, and also looking at including diversity, equity, inclusion as, as a key component of that. So it's a really exciting time. And I think the concept is really all hands on deck to ensure a just energy transition. And of course, you know, our focus is on hydrogen and fuel cells, but we're doing a lot in that area. So thanks again for the question. No, I mean, it definitely sounds like a really exciting time for the US market. And thank you again, Sunita, for joining us this episode and providing us with a little bit more insight into the policy priorities for the US. Great. Thank you so much, Polly, again, for the interest and for all the important work that you do, because education and outreach, those are actually one of the challenges for hydrogen. Many know solar and wind and batteries, geothermal, but more public awareness about hydrogen and fuel cells is really valuable as we help to accelerate the transition to clean energy. Absolutely. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe for the latest HE Live episodes. And for more news and analysis, be sure to subscribe to Hydrogen Economist and follow us on social media for more updates.